Welcome to Cross Border Tax Talks, where we discuss the latest trends in international taxation, from U.S. tax reform to the OECD's latest developments. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's U.S. International Tax Services leader. You can follow me on Twitter at XBorderTax. I'm really thrilled to be joined by Pat Brown. Pat holds a mechanical engineering degree from UVA and a law degree from Georgetown. Pat was the Associate International Tax Counsel at Treasury, working for our own Pam Olson, before joining PwC just several weeks ago as our U.S. International Tax Policy Leader. Pat was at General Electric, where he had roles including Senior International Tax Counsel and Tax Director of GE Power and Water. Pat, welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Great to be here. So, Pat, I am actually a third-generation Missouri Tiger and the only one of the third generations that did not get an engineering degree. So my, <laughs> my grandfather is an uh, electrical engineer. My dad was a civil engineer. So I broke the mold and did accounting, apparently still math-oriented, and then was the first lawyer in the family. So right. I, I love running into engineers. <laughs> and my dad passed away about 15 years ago, but we talked a lot about the similarities, frankly, in taxation and structuring and architecture yep. and, and engineering. And so how is your, before we even dive into anything relevant, how, right. how has that engineering degree helped you in your, uh, in your profession as a tax lawyer? Yeah, well, let me actually start, with a little bit of an aside on you talked about family background so uh i'm one of four children um and both my mother and my father were the first in their families to ever go to college uh and their um strict instructions to their four children were that we could do whatever we wanted in college but there were only two types of degrees they would pay for uh those were engineering and accounting uh so uh you know i actually today i have a brother who's a lawyer a brother who's a doctor and a sister who's an engineer but all four of their children um started off as engineers uh one of them actually graduated in finance decided engineering was not for him he subsequently became an attorney so um my path to engineering was pretty well determined uh through my family frankly which was you know you were going to do engineering or accounting if you wanted your college to be funded by your parents uh because of course it was all about getting a job when you got out it wasn't about exploring your your future. So I, look, I would say being an engineer, uh, having that quantitative background was, first of all, enormously helpful when I went to law school. But not surprisingly, you gravitate in law school to things that um, are analytical in nature. And, you know, the, the two most obvious places for somebody with my background to look, initially, it was patent law. Uh, mm -hmm. And I, I took a course in patent law. And probably about two weeks in, I decided I did not want to be a patent lawyer. Uh, just really not all that interesting to me, to be fair. Sure. Um, but tax just drew me in like I was like a moth to a flame. You know, this was so analytical, uh, almost quantitative, uh, really, and obviously aspects of it are quite quantitative. Um, but even in a law school environment, it was highly, highly analytical and, and in a way, you know, again, very quantitative. So it was a very natural fit for me. Uh, and I started off my career at a firm in New York called Sullivan and Cromwell, sure. great, great Wall Street firm. Um, they initially wanted me to be a corporate lawyer. Uh, I had a little bit of taste of that as a summer associate and decided that was not for me either. So uh, nothing against corporate lawyers. They're no. great people, but it was definitely not what I wanted to do. So tax law, again, was sort of the natural fit for my background. And, you know, I found that, frankly, the, the long hours at a place like Sullivan and Cromwell, which were not pleasant, uh, 
uh, they were a lot more pleasant when I was working on tax stuff because they it really drew my you know my intellect into it you know the intellectual curiosity around this the analytical framework as I was much more engaged with that than I ever would have been as a corporate lawyer. Absolutely. Well, Pat, we're over a year now into the enactment of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I, I can't decide if it's felt like two months or <laughs> two decades, frankly, at this point. But it's transformed corporate international taxation. We've now received proposed regulations on all of the major provisions at this point, beat, guilty, foreign tax credits, 163J, most recently FDII, and that's not an inclusive list. So as taxpayers, advisors, academics are all gearing up for comments on the proposed regs, I want to spend a little time reflecting on where we are from a policy perspective. As I travel around the country talking to our clients, I spend most of my time on the big publicly traded U.S. US multinationals, but still spend a lot of time with our foreign-based multinational clients, spend some time in private equity as well. But it's been really interesting to me how certain provisions that I'm not sure we're really designed to impact certain types of companies, how it's really, really impacted them. So I, thir first, I thought maybe we'd first start with BEAT, with our base erosion and anti-abuse tax. One of the things that I find interesting that it was in the inbound section yes. of the TCJA as far as where it sat within the actual provisions. Yes. I think the policy, right, was intended to prevent foreign-based multinationals from base eroding the U.S. Right. Through hence the name, right? Hence the name <laughs> through related party interest, royalties specifically, but also obviously any other type of, of payments. But one of the things that has really surprised me as I go around is the number of U.S. multinationals that this has impacting yep. for a, just a variety of reasons. And particularly when there is absolutely no strategy or intended strategy to, to base erode the U.S. Right. But Let's unpack that a little bit, yeah. and uh, let's start with BEAT, and then we can get into some of the yeah, other Yeah, so the funny thing about BEAT, and you started there, Doug, so I'll start there. So I remember when uh, the, Senate, the Senate bill text was released. I think it was actually a Friday evening during the time the tax reform was moving forward. It seemed like a lot of things came out on Friday evenings, uh, thereby assuring that everybody's weekend was spent trying to figure this stuff out. Um, and I literally um, saw the title uh, for what became Section 59 Cap A, uh, the base erosion uh, anti-abuse tax or anti-avoidance tax, whatever it's called. Uh, and I skipped over it. I said, oh, this is the tough inbound provision that everybody was talking about. This isn't going to be relevant to me. I worked for GE, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so this isn't going to be relevant to me. So, uh, you know, it, at my leisure, I will read that and I will understand it, but I don't need to, I, it's Friday night. I got to figure out the rest of this stuff. And we were, you know, literally over the weekend getting back to senior management with this is what the bill has in it. Um, to my surprise and not pleasant surprise, uh, the beat actually had a, you know, meaningful impact potentially on companies with a profile like GE, uh, and obviously without getting into GE specific details, you know, the, the, the issues for a lot of us, uh, multinational companies, really U S based multinational companies really have to do with the way the beat is calculated and, and the fact that. If you are subject to the beat, which you can think about at a high level like an alternative minimum tax, mm -hmm. only unlike the old AMT, which was repealed in tax reform, the beat doesn't give you a foreign tax credit effectively. And so when you do your beat computation, you just say, okay, well, this is like the AMT, the old AMT, in that you calculate your tax at a lower rate with a broader base. That was the essence of the AMT. If you just stop there at 30,000 feet, that was the AMT, that's the beat. Um, the AMT, of course, allowed you to have a foreign tax credit. 
Uh, for a number of years, the AMT actually had a so-called 90% limit on the foreign tax credit, right. which that was in place back when I was in the Treasury Department. And I remember our treaty partners screaming mm-hmm. uh, when I would sit across the table from them in treaty negotiations that not giving a full foreign tax credit was actually a violation of our income tax treaties. This was when you were getting a credit for 90%, right? right? Um, the BEAT, you get no credit mm-hmm. for foreign taxes effectively under the BEAT computation. So in terms of you know, uh, what I'll call sort of a, you know, uh, inconsistency with treaty policy, the BEAT is very stark in that regard. And again, for U.S. multinationals, who I think a lot of us were said, well, this, this, is not a, this is a tough inbound provision. It's not relevant for us. But when you do the computation, if you're subject to the BEAT, because it denies you your foreign tax credits, if you are a globally engaged company and you pay a lot of foreign taxes, uh, you know, and again, when I was at GE, the business that I was associated with, we were in over 100 countries. We filed tax returns in over 100 countries mm-hmm. every year. We paid a lot of foreign tax. Uh, so the the mechanics of that computation really, you know, can bite in ways that a lot of companies, I think, just frankly did not expect. Yeah, and just to unpack that a little bit, what what you're saying is is that the particular we'll get into to guilty um, momentarily, but the generally what the the guilty is structured similarly to a minimum tax. I'm not going to call it a minimum tax, but right. generally, if you're paying 13.125 percent on from a blended perspective in all of your CFCs, yes. then theoretically you shouldn't have any guilty. Now, expense apportionment creates some issues. We've talked about that on the podcast in the past, but the the fact is is that if companies are paying at or above 13.125 then generally besides the expense apportionment they shouldn't have any guilty and the issue is is that if you're particularly a US multinational with a bunch of foreign subsidiaries and then you have payments to those foreign subsidiaries for any number of reasons right. and for the most part it's usually not interest because if it's interest to a related party that's going to be subpart f so there's really no base erosion from a debt perspective right. that typically happens um there's also withholding taxes and a whole other number of issues that that companies have to deal with when those outbound payments are are being made but the challenge that a lot of us multinationals are having is that if they end up running into a beat presumably they're above the the threshold the three percent overall threshold the issue is and I, this has been i think the really big surprise as as you alluded to is that if you end up in the beat, those U.S. multinationals now are paying effectively a 10% tax on that guilty income without any foreign tax Correct. credits. Correct. And that has surprised, I think, a lot of people and really incentivized companies to, to try to get below that 3% threshold to take that issue off the table. Yeah, and I, I would agree, Doug. And I would also say that one of the other design elements of the beat that I think is problematic from a policy perspective is the so-called cliff effect. And, you know, this is not me, you know, commenting on this for the first time. Folks on the Hill have commented on that as an element of the beat. And by the cliff effect, I mean if you're below this 3% threshold, so, you know, fewer than 3% if you're a non-financial company, uh, less than 3% of your deductions are to related foreign parties, then you're just not in the beat. Mm -hmm. But once you cross that 3% threshold, now you're in the beat, and it could be 3.01%. But when you're in that calculation – Again, lower rate, broader base, you would think, well, that's not a big deal um, at a 10% rate versus a 21% rate, let's say. But it's the taking away of the foreign tax credits that causes that cliff effect to become, frankly, potentially catastrophic and can really almost double your effective tax rate on your foreign earnings. Uh, Because to your point, now whatever foreign tax you paid, you paid, but you get no credit for it, and you've got 10% on top of that, right? 
Uh, so that's because of the guilty inclusion, meaning all this income is in the return. So the interaction of beat and guilty, if you're subject to the beat, is all of those foreign earnings that are tested income that are included now get included without any foreign tax credit. And so, you know, your, your effective tax rate is really going to get driven up by the impact of those two provisions together. Yeah, what I've been ad advising companies is to, first of all, do whatever you can to try to stay, to not jump off the cliff. But one of the things, and I'd be interested in hearing your comments, this is coming from a company, is, you know, what controls can be put in place to, to manage that? Because it's really any, it's any type of deductible payment. So, you know, interest, that's, more, that's manageable, right? Royalties, those types of things. But other type of just operational expenses yep. that, you know, the business people, I assume a company particularly the size of GE, you know, people are doing business, payments are being made, stuff's going out the door. And I can imagine a, a scenario where somebody would make some deductible payment that maybe the tax department was not aware. And all of a sudden, if that throws you above that yes. 3%, we could end up seeing some companies later in this year that, you know, have significant ETR impacts as a result of that. But yeah. How do you how do companies manage? That? Well, look, we we uh, it's I'm glad you raised it. We have uh, within GE, um, we had an internal audit function. So these were basically young people recently out of um, out of school, high flyers, high potential people. Uh, and their job basically was to go around the company and figure out issues that needed attention where we needed to put processes in place and things like that. They were not I'm not talking about tax experts here. I'm talking about basically generalist, you know, people with a, either a background in finance or an interest in finance. And when tax reform happened, they were very interested in engaging with with us on how they could help. And again, these are not tax specialists. Mm -hmm. So the question came to me, well, is are there things that we can do? And the very first thing I said to them was. I need a mechanism to monitor whether I am having payments that are potentially subject to the beat. Because if the first time I find, about th find out about this is when we're putting the return together, that's a really bad time to find out about this. Really so bad. I need a mechanism to figure this, if possible, obviously, to remediate. And the problem with the beat, again, is because it's, you know, it's that 3% threshold over the course of the year. If you figure out a problem in November... You've got 10, 10 and a half months worth of payments that have already happened that, you know, have already created a beat problem. So from our perspective, it was how do we get on top of this as early in the year as mm -hmm. possible? Um, of course, for 2018, the beat rate is, is you know, was 5%. Mm -hmm. So there was a little bit of a, you know, a, a reprieve, if you will, on that just because the rate was so much lower. Um but now into 2019, you know, companies who are concerned about the beat, I would say, be very, very careful because, again, obviously companies are varying sizes of complexity and things like that. Um, for a company like like my former company, it was the thing that most that kept me up at night was how am I going to know when you know when, uh, a particular business enters into a new new services right. contract and there's a set of payments that are going outside the United States. And how can I get a monitoring of that right away? Because one of the things about the beat is if you're aware of things and you structure in advance, you probably have some degree of flexibility, not in all cases to mm -hmm. be sure, but you have some degree of flexibility to maybe avoid or mitigate that payment stream from being problematic. Uh, but that doesn't do you any good when you're putting the return together and right. the payments have already happened. Yeah, you had mentioned that 2018, it was 5% for two, for years going beyond. So this year, 2019 and beyond, it's now 10% times right. this alternative minimum taxable income concept. 
which means that number is going to be a lot bigger. And if that number, the 10% time this alternative minimum taxable income is larger than your regular tax liability, then you're then you're into the beat. Yep. Yeah, I, that certainly sounds like a best practice uh, for for all companies to, to consider, yeah. whether inbound, outbound, public or private to, yeah. to manage I, I, I No question. And I, I, again, what, what can you do under the category of, well, what can I do? That's something you can do is let's figure out what those payments are. Uh, but let's figure out what they are before I'm putting the return right. together. Maybe as, as just a closing comment on the beat, I, I do like to remind everybody that I think one of the reasons that, that the beat worked or at least didn't have as big of maybe pushback as we might have seen, albeit it was a relatively limited time frame as far as the TCJ right. going through, but it did seem better than the border-adjusted tax. <laughs> well, it all depended on your facts. I guess it does depend <laughs> on your facts. But, and I happen to do, I do, a, again, a, a lot of U.S. multinational work, and I've also spent a lot of time in my career doing retail and consumer products and right. a lot of you know those types of <clears throat> industries that source a lot of product from outside the U.S. Yes. So this, it, it seemed better, but I, I joke that, you know, if I've got an idea that my, I know my wife's not overly excited about, I'll right. usually float something that I know that is even worse idea than what I'm proposing <laughs> with the hope of her maybe saying, well, that, okay, it's not as bad as the other stupid thing that you yeah. said. But, well, it's, it's increasingly relegated, I think, to the dustbin of history. But um, uh, I think when the beat was going through at times, people were referring to it as the mini bat. Uh, you know, because it has elements of the border adjustment, as the folks called it, the destination-based cash flow tax, I believe is what it was called. Um, but obviously, as you say, much narrower in, in application. And so I think, yeah, for a lot of folks, maybe it was, well, it could have been worse. We could have faced the destination-based cash flow tax. Now, that was not a bad answer for all companies, of course. Fair enough. Um, so it's a different population that's affected, you know, by the beat. But in terms of its application across the economy, there's no question it's a much smaller, has a much smaller imprint on the economy. This is the beat than than the destination-based cash flow tax would have had, of course. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see the sustainability of that. And I certainly understand the policy and that Congress was in a definitely challenging environment to try to, you know, avoid the the base erosion. And we've seen some other jurisdictions, which we'll, we'll get to a little bit later here, uh, try to impose various other types of, of taxes, which I certainly think is challenging. So let's move to the global intangible low tax income guilty, right? Which is this, this new category of our subpart F, you know, commonly referred to as a minimum tax. Although, as we've discussed here on the podcast, it's not necessarily a minimum tax because of our interest expense apportionment or just expense apportionment. And interest expense apportionment is really impacting uh, a lot of companies. What are your views on guilty? What are you seeing? You know, we're 14 months in, 15 months in. We've got the proposed regs, which have certainly shed some light. Right. You know, one general comment I have is just all of these provisions, the enormous complexity and compliance. And, you know, as, as a tax nerd, I, I love diving right. into the detailed mechanics. And yeah. I'm now spending a lot of time in my current role figuring out how do you model all this stuff and just the web of complexity is fascinating. But what are your views kind of? Yeah. So I would say, I mean, going back to when uh, tax reform is moving through the process, right? Again, I, I remember when I first read, I think on the house side, they called it the foreign high returns amount or something like that. And on the Senate side, they felt like, I guess they had to come up with a more clever acronym. So we, we ended up with guilty. It's certainly that. (laughs) Yes. Um, But I, I remember reading it uh, for the very first time, again, both the House side and the Senate side, and seeing that what we had all described before we saw the legislative text as the aggregate minimum tax or the one CFC minimum tax, 
that the mechanic that was being used was actually to put it in the foreign tax credit system as a separate foreign tax credit basket. And I remember, stupid me, looking at it and saying, oh, that's kind of curious, but I guess that makes sense. That's a way to do it. There's a set of rules and a set of principles that, that has been in the code, basically going back to 1913 when the foreign tax credit came in, or maybe it was 1919. Um, but, you know, these rules have been around for a long time. There's a set of, you know, concepts and there's a framework there that, to be sure, has changed over time. But nevertheless, there's a lot of jurisprudence that's built up. So, OK, do it through the foreign tax credit mechanism. I think like a lot of folks, it took me a while to figure out, well, gosh, you really bring in a lot of what I would have called from a minimum tax perspective, extraneous concepts like expense allocation like the interaction between the baskets, like what if you have an overall domestic loss? What if you have a separate limitation loss? What is the impact of that on a basket, the guilty basket? That is like no other basket, right? I mean, and there are a lot of ways in which guilty is like no other basket. Obviously, there's the lack of a carryover and a carry back. There's the fact that unique to all the baskets, you look across all of your CFCs and do your tested income and tested loss sort of computation. Uh, of course, there's the guilty haircut, the 80%, uh, you know, or 20% haircut, whatever you want to call it, on the amount of credit you're able to claim. Um, so I would say guilty sits within the foreign tax credit framework, but it does so very uneasily. Mm -hmm. um, and I frankly, from conversations I've had with folks who were on the Hill at the time, I think there was an appreciation for some of that. I don't think there was a full appreciation of exactly what all of the impacts were going to be. And that's not a criticism. Mm. I didn't appreciate it. Uh, none of us, I think, appreciated it at the time. This was moving through very quickly, and right. people were trying to figure out. And again, my initial reaction on reading this was, oh, I guess I, I wouldn't have done it that way, but I guess it's kind of logical to think about that as a starting point. Uh, but as a result, now we have these concepts that are causing this, you know, again, guilty sits within uh, the framework of the foreign tax credit, but does so in a very uneasy way and in ways that obviously a lot of taxpayers are surprised by. So there was, of course, a Wall Street Journal article that a lot of us uh, read. It was probably almost a year ago now mm -hmm. about a company uh, called Kansas City Southern. Uh, again, this was all in the Wall Street Journal uh, that discovered to their chagrin that uh, although their operations outside the United States were in high tax jurisdictions, they were nevertheless facing a significant residual U.S. tax on their guilty income because of the impact of expense allocation. So, Yeah, specifically Mexico, which exactly you know, 30% exactly. statutory right. rate. And just in that industry, as they describe in that article, super capital intensive, highly leveraged business, right. their only international operation was Mexico. Exactly. And because of interest expense apportionment, they were paying a whopping amount. I don't remember what the amount was, right. but a whopping right. amount of U.S. tax on guilty when their only operation was in Mexico. Yeah. And, and, you know, a lot of companies and, you know, we were certainly in this category at GE. A lot of companies had done a fair amount of modeling before you saw any legislative text to figure out what you thought the impact would be, basically how much foreign tax were you paying on your on your foreign operations. And for most companies, if the answer was, well, I was paying more than X amount, the, the thought was, well, I know there's this minimum tax provision out there, but I'm not really going to have to worry about it because I pay a significant amount of foreign tax every year. Um, so that, that when I what I would come back to as I think about where we sit today in terms of the regulatory process, you mentioned that proposed regs have come out. And I think what the proposed regs did was – they were, they represented an attempt by Treasury, I would say, to apply the foreign tax credit concepts that we've all gotten comfortable with in a way that tries to ameliorate some of the impacts of guilty expense allocation. Mm. 
what I think I would encourage folks within the government to, to do at this stage is really ask the question, given that guilty is unlike every other basket, is there more that we can do and should do from a regulatory perspective to recognize the unique nature of guilty as we are thinking about things like expense allocation? Because if you, if you tie yourself strictly down to the limits of the framework that existed prior to the TCJA, there's only a limited amount that you can actually do to move the dial on expense allocation. And one of the things that I think has come through pretty clearly in conversations with people on the Hill after the, the bill was enacted is that the folks on the Hill who voted for tax reform, the actual members with voting cards, they did not believe they were getting what we've ended up getting with mm -hmm. guilty in terms of cases like the Kansas you know, um, fact patterns like Kansas City Southern, where you're operating outside the United States in fairly high tax jurisdictions, and you're still facing this residual U.S. tax. That is a surprise mm -hmm. to people who voted for tax reform. And so there is this disconnect between the framework and the intention. And I think the, the question is how creative and, and how expansive is Treasury and the IRS able to be as we move from proposed to final regs to try and ameliorate that? Yeah, in, in the conference report, it, it had mentioned that, well, effectively, if, as long as you're paying 13.125, and a lot of us wanted to hang our hat on exactly. that to say, well, that, exactly. that was clearly the intention to turn off expense allocation. Right. And I think what has been said publicly by Treasury and um, th those on the Hill that will know that that really wasn't the intention to, to turn off that, and there were no rules. Is there any precedence or, or statutory framework that, you know, Treasury could potentially look to if they were trying to look for someplace to hang their hat to try to turn off expense allocation? Yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'm sort of on a little bit of a crusade, uh, a mini crusade. I, I don't think I have any other takers yet, but maybe this podcast will, will prove the, uh, the start. Um, there's actually a provision in Section 864E7 that actually authorizes the Treasury Department to turn off interest allocation. For whatever reason, basically, if it's consistent with, you know, uh, Treasury's goals in in uh, in implementing particular provisions, they can turn off interest exp expense allocation mm -hmm. full stop. Um, it only applies to interest. But as you noted, you know, interest is, I think, one of the biggest, if not the biggest Absolutely. for most companies. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking and in, in, in some of my conversations uh, with folks on the Hill and the Treasury is, look, you, one might look at that and say, well, that's an extreme option. It doesn't have to be an extreme option. It doesn't have to be forever. Treasury could actually turn off interest expense allocation while it considered what it could do, while it considered what the Hill could do to try and deal with the fact that I think everyone acknowledges there is a disconnect between some of the results that we're seeing and what people on the Hill thought they were getting. And again, I would agree uh, that, you know, it, it's hard, notwithstanding the language in the conference report, to come away and say it's very clear that Congress intended expense mm -hmm. allocation not to apply. There are other provisions, Section 904B4, for example, that would suggest, well, there's, there's, there's some element here of expense allocation that would seem like it should be applied in some way. But the results that we're seeing are so out of bounds compared to what people were expecting that using a provision like, like that, which exists within Section 864E7, to say, let's hit pause. Let's actually figure out what we can do here, how creative we can be, and have conversations with people on the Hill 
about what they would like to see us do and maybe get to a better place. So that's my crusade. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll check back and see how effective I am on this, but, uh, you know, I've been trying to, I've been trying to push that. Well, before you joined us, Pat, I'm not sure that I had ever really spent any time focusing on that provision. And I heard you mention it before, and I just immediately opened up the code and was like, let me take a look at that. And it's, it's there. It's there. It's It's there. It is right there. And I certainly think that it's something that, you know, treasury and, and the service could, could look to, to, to try to suspend things until we could get some sort of statutory relief. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the what we're seeing globally too, particularly as it relates to guilty. Because you know we we've seen I think Germany has has come out publicly and said well maybe they should consider a, a minimum tax. And then I think one of the things is they talked about in the context of minimum tax is a per country minimum tax, as opposed to obviously even if you would consider guilty a minimum tax, it's not per country. It allows all the various CFC to. I hate to use the word pool since pooling is gone. Right, to right. Aggregate yes. maybe all of their there you go. all of their all of their income, and boy, particularly with global supply chains and just globalization, just yeah. thinking, trying to think about things on a per country basis seems very difficult. But maybe you can even reflect in your GE days. Yeah, too. look, I would say under the heading of it could always be worse. Uh, you know, when I think about guilty, I think the one thing that Congress clearly got right. Uh, is it did not go for a per country minimum tax. And and for a lot of companies, uh, we spent a fair amount of time, I spent a lot of time in coalitions of other companies educating people on the Hill about how not just companies like GE, but frankly, most companies uh, with, as you say, global supply chains, how do we go to market? How do we do business? Uh, And the concept, you know, if you go back to 1962 when Subpart F was enacted, uh, I think the concept of a U.S. multinational doing business in foreign markets was very much, you can almost think of it like a flag planning concept, right? You went into a particular foreign market, you built a facility there, that facility was really potentially for that market. And then you started to see, you know, some gradual changes, you know, so you might have a, a location in Europe that was for Europe or things like that. We have moved so far from that. Mm -hmm. Uh, When you think about uh, the world today, and obviously trade liberalization has made that a lot easier, uh, but the reality is simply that companies going uh, in in business in foreign markets today, you know, you may have a, you know, factory in Vietnam that produces components that get shipped to another factory in France that, you know, assembles those components with other components that are produced in China uh, or in North Africa. And that makes a complex machine that is then sent to customers in locations all around the world. Um, And that's frankly, you know, I say this without a hint of irony. That's a very simplified example. Right. We, you know, if we we had a factory in France that sourced product, you know, sourced components from probably at least a dozen, maybe two dozen different countries. uh, And that was one factory. Mm -hmm. And then the output of that factory went to probably 30 or 40 other countries. Um, and so when, when I think about uh, that type of a global supply chain arrangement, the notion that uh, a tax authority would come in and say, well, tell me how much tax you paid in this country in this year as an indication of whether or not you're engaged in some form of tax planning or tax avoidance that needs to be policed, it's just not a fit. Mm-hmm. It doesn't make sense with the way companies do business. And in the vast majority of cases, of course, one of the things I always joked about is when I would go talk to people in tax policy circles as a representative of a company, it always made me feel like I was this really important guy. Like the tax department actually called the shots about where companies built factories and things right. like that. It's not the case, right? You know, uh, And so 
what the tax department really would do was take the hand they were dealt, which is we're going to build a factory in Vietnam or we're going to build a factory in you know North Africa. Or we're going to build a factory where we're going to build it. And now figure out how to work within that framework, first of all, to avoid double taxation. But then if you can beyond that optimize, that's what you're dealing with. That's the nature of global business mm -hmm. today. And a per country minimum tax just doesn't it doesn't line up. Yeah, I, I joke that if, if tax around the world, there would be a lot of manufacturing and tax havens. Right. And, and we don't. <laughs> exactly. We, we don't, we don't see that. Strangely enough, you don't see that. Right. So you know, we think mm. about, I mean, the diverted profits tax, which the UK has proposed. There's a lot of discussion about digital service tax or the digital tax, all as part of BEPS 2.0. And then we think of the this this potential global minimum tax now as an alternative to those two or something that would lay on top. It's going to be very interesting to see how our foreign counterparts look at guilty specifically and start to, to adapt and change their own rules. Yeah, I, I look, I think that's right. And I think one of the things that I'm struck by uh, when I engage with policymakers, including government officials from other countries, is there is a, a recognition, almost a paranoia. And I, I'd say that, you know, I, I don't mean that to sound pejorative, but there is this clear notion of we are not going to get caught behind the curve of where business is going. And so when you think about data and you think about the role that data will play going forward, I just literally read an article yesterday where there's an official um, policy document from the government of India that this is not somebody speaking loosely on a podcast or something like this, this official policy document from the government of India that refers to data as the new oil. And wow. it's essentially, and you think about it, unpack that a little bit, you're like this is an incredibly valuable thing, first point. Secondly, unlike the experience of some countries in the natural resources area, at least India is planting a flag to say, we do not intend to let foreign multinationals come in and extract the value associated with this new oil without us capturing an appropriate share of the revenue associated with that. So there's a recognition globally, to be sure, emerging market economies, but not just emerging market economies, that they do not want to get caught behind in changes in the economy, they, they need to get in front of that. There's a real, um, a paranoia is too strong of a word, but there's a real earnest desire to make sure that they're not playing catch up. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, what we see playing out right now, which it's fascinating. There's also, let's face it, an element of peril to that for all of us because nobody knows the future. So people are making bets as far as how they think this is going to play out. Um, tax doesn't usually work that way. Right. Tax usually sees the world and reacts to it and says, well, this is where the revenue is. And so this is what I'm going to, this is what I'm going to do about it. What we're seeing right now is an effort on the part of tax policymakers to say, yeah, we're not going to do that. We're going to try and get ahead of this and make sure that we're capturing this stuff, uh, as it as it emerges rather than playing catch up five or 10 years later. Yeah. And the thing that we value as tax advisors is certainty. Right? Exactly. So when our clients come to us, when the business people come to those within their tax departments exactly. and they're making major investment decisions, whether it's buying a target or putting exactly. a new piece of manufacturing equipment, certainty is what we value to be able to make the assessment and the recommendation as far as where to invest those dollars. And exactly. With all of this uncertainty, not just in the U.S., but globally, it's, it's very challenging. It, it is. And I would say, you know, that is, I think, one of the most challenging things to communicate as a tax person within a company. This is the world that we have right now after U.S. tax reform. How stable do we think it is, right? Uh, I don't know. I don't know what is on the horizon. Uh, you know, we touched briefly on FDII, the regs that have come out on there. You know, FDII, I think, is potentially a really powerful provision. 
if it's still around in 10 years. And, you know, I hope it will be. I believe there's good reason to believe that that FDII is WTO compliant. Mm -hmm. But I know people are looking at that. Uh, and um, and we can expect there will be a full assessment of that by um, by folks at the WTO, EU and other 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 fora. So. Uh, it, this whole notion of stability is one, and certainty uh, is one that is really, really challenging. Because when companies make decisions, they don't make decisions for the next eighteen months. You know, when you're deciding where you're going to build a facility, that's a ten, fifteen, twenty-year decision. And they turn to the tax person and say, "Well, how do we model this?" And you say, "Well, you know, I can model it with today's laws. I can model it with what I think the laws might be in five years." Of course, what do you do? You model it with the law as best you know it, and you build in certain you know, caveats around what that's going to be, which is anathema to anybody in a business. That don't tell me you know, it could be X, Y, Z, or W. You know, I want to know what it's going to be. You know, basically like, and from their perspective, it's understandable. They're like, look, you're talking to me about tax risks. Mm. I've got a bazillion risks to worry about outside right. of the tax area. I have to make a call. I need you, my tax guy, to make a call. Don't tell me it could be X or it could be Y. I need to know what your best judgment is. And, and if you're wrong, by the way, I am going to hold you accountable for that. <laughs> you know, so that's, that's the reality. And, and it, for me, as, a, as someone within a company, it gave me a real insight into the fact that I worry about certainty and stability in the tax area. There's a whole world outside of tax where these same, you know, discussions are being had, whether it's trade, geopolitical uncertainty, where... Business uh, leaders have to make these decisions, and you know we can help by taking our best guess, but recognizing that we don't know the future, right? Well, Pat, I'm really excited to have you as one of my partners. I could keep doing this for another several hours, and maybe maybe you might be the first long-form podcast I've been thinking about doing that because there's a lot more I'd like to unpack, but unfortunately, we're out of time. But the unfortunate part is you're right down the hall. So exactly. we can, uh, we can do a, another podcast here in the near future. So thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Cross-Border Tax Talks. Thank you, Pat Brown, PwC's U.S. International Tax Policy Leader. I'm Doug McConey, PwC's International Tax Leader. Stay tuned in two weeks for another exciting edition of Cross-Border Tax Talks.